Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of amazing articles to talk about today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. Well, Science Alert is letting us know that these useless specks of dust we've been identifying on slides turn out to be building blocks of all vertebrate genomes. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, originally, they were just thought to be specks of dust on a microscope slide, but a new study is suggesting that microchromosomes, a type of tiny chromosome found in birds and reptiles, have a longer history and a bigger role to play in mammals than we ever suspected. What the researchers hmm. did is they lined up the DNA sequence of microchromosomes across many different species, and they were able to show the consistency of these DNA molecules across bird and reptile families, which was a consistency that stretches back hundreds of millions of years. So if you are a dino fan, this may be old news to you. But what's more, the team found that these bits of genetic code have been scrambled and placed on larger chromosomes in marsupial and placental mammals, including humans. Hmm. From geneticist Jenny Graves from La Trobe University in Australia, quote, Astonishingly, the microchromosomes were the same across all bird and reptile species. But even more astonishingly, they were the same as the tiny chromosomes of Amphioxus, a little fish-like animal with no backbone that shared a common ancestor with vertebrates about 684 million years ago. And so this mm -hmm. Amphioxus was pretty key because by tracing the microchromosomes back to this little guy, the scientists were able to establish genetic links to all of its descendants. And so what they're thinking is that mammals have absorbed and jumbled up their microchromosomes as they've evolved, which makes them seem like normal pieces of DNA. Of course, we do have one exception, the platypus. It seems to be the exception to all the rules, and that one's got several chromosome sections that line up with microchromosomes. And they're suggesting that the platypus method may well have acted as a quote-unquote stepping stone for other mammals in this regard. They've got a really big family tree flow chart where you can see all, like if you played Animal Crossing, you know, it's that thing <laughs> in the museum where it shows all the descendants and things. But they've done it with this, you know, lens of scientific rigor. Other findings from the study, they found that as well as being similar across numerous species, that the microchromosomes were also located in the same place inside cells. So not only are they nearly the same in each species, hmm. but they crowd together in the center of the nucleus where they physically interact with each other. Hmm. They're suggesting that the large chromosome approach that has evolved in mammals is actually not a normal state and might be a disadvantage. For example, genes are packed hmm. together much more tightly in microchromosomes. So rather than being normal, the chromosomes of humans and other mammals were puffed up with lots of quote-unquote junk DNA and scrambled in many different <laughs> ways. And so this new knowledge can explain why there's such a large range of mammals with vastly different genomes inhabiting every corner of our planet. I mean, you know, one person's junk DNA is another person's cool mutation <laughs> that allows them to have ESP or whatever. So I'm, exactly I'm not going right. to argue. I like my junk DNA. You can't have it. 
<laughs> I like junk DNA. <laughs> Damn, next link. Next link. This next article comes to us from theweathernetwork.com, and it's titled DST Oddities, Five Ways the Twice Annual Time Change Got Weird. Oh, I, can I just say right off the bat, <laughs> I hate daylight savings. And I know I'm not alone. I'm preaching to the choir 90%. Like, I, nobody mm-hmm. likes it. But, oh, my God, it wreaked havoc on me this year in particular. And, like, just, yeah. I'm against mm-hmm. it. I want it outlawed. I'm done. <laughs> Pets everywhere agree with you, Jennifer. Yes. Yeah, the dogs same. are waking me up an hour early. Yeah, it's just not cool. <laughs> and I mean, I always say that whenever it happens, I never know whether we're going into daylight saving times or out of it. And the fact that that doesn't matter at all yep. should right. tell you just about how important it is. Yeah, exactly. just sort of passively respond like, I guess that's another wrench. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about some other things that have happened as a result of this. <laughs> so DST <laughs> once sparked an actual riot. <gasps> in 1997, things got out of hand in Athens, Ohio, when bars catering to Ohio University students closed early as a result of the time change. Mm. And by out of hand, they mean a full-fledged riot, including a thousand <laughs> people that had oh. to be dispersed by police in riot gear. Oh, snap. And it wasn't easy going for the police, as reports from the Times suggest rubber bullets actually failed to have much of an impact, forcing law enforcement to use wooden projectiles, which I don't (gasps) know what that means. Like, crossbows and stakes? Like, what (laughs) is happening? Uh, And then batons. And some 47 people were arrested. Wow. And then the next year, it was more or less the same thing. (laughs) Students treated the time change as an anniversary of sorts, with some 2,000 people making it out. And this time, the mayor declared an emergency, and the crowds were again dispersed, though two policemen were injured and 27 people were arrested. Wow. Yeah. The event made headlines across the U.S., though police, the university, and even some protesters quoted in student media suggested the violence was likely more due to other factors, with the time change acting as a catalyst. But (laughs) who knows, you know? Well, and it makes sense because nowadays we do the time switch at 2 a.m., which is when the bars were going to close. So either oh. at two it becomes three, or at two it becomes one, and you get another hour of partying. I don't, th- I don't know if that's why they do it at two. I just have decided that that makes sense. <laughs> Look, it, I mean, it, enforcing for me. I like a it. time change or a time warp on a population to cater to the whims of a few drunks it just doesn't sound like good policy to me. Yeah, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't do it. <laughs> Fair. So additionally, the time change got a man out of the Vietnam draft. What? Yeah, so U.S. involvement in Vietnam escalated to the point where limited conscription was introduced to beef up manpower in the form of a complicated draft lottery based on birth dates selected randomly. And one particular man, who was not named, had a relatively low draft number due to his birth date, and he'd had the misfortune to have been not long after midnight. (laughs) According to NPR, he actually went to court and argued that he had been born in standard time in his own state, and the change happened to place the time of his birth before midnight the previous day, which happened to be a day where he was less likely to be drafted. So we don't have very many details on how long the court case dragged out, but it seems to have worked, and he was not sent overseas to Vietnam. Hey, that's a technicality worth doubling down on. Yeah. 
So in a sinister mirror of the Vietnam draft case, the time change allowed one convicted criminal to ward off the gallows for an hour. Um, (laughs) So, you know, according to the Chicago Tribune, that city adopted daylight saving time in June 1920. And that fall, notorious gang leader Salvatore Sam Cardinella was found guilty of the murder of a saloon keeper. This was on top of his culpability in the many other crimes committed by his gang, which purportedly included 20 murders, 100 armed robberies, and 150 other burglaries. Wow. When the day of his execution came up in 1921, he argued successfully that because he'd been sentenced before the time change, it would unfairly rob him of an hour of his rapidly shortening life. (laughs) That won't mean anything after I'm dead, but will mean a lot Friday morning. The governor could change his mind in that time. Yeah. It's happened. Yeah, uh, the governor did not. And after an hour's (laughs) postponement, Cardinello's hanging went ahead, though the Tribune says he had to be hanged while seated in a chair as he was apparently not able to stand. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, grim. (laughs) (laughs) Also, we had chaos on the train tracks. So in the U.S., President Franklin Roosevelt instituted nationwide wartime in 1942, setting clocks back an hour on a year round basis. The rule was eventually rescinded a few weeks before the end of the Second World War, but states were allowed to bring their own version of DST without worrying about a national standard. And as expected, what happened next was a couple of decades of what has been called time chaos. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. (laughs) According to the Great Falls Tribune, in 1965, there are 23 pairs of start and end dates to daylight savings in Iowa alone. In Minnesota, the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul observed the beginning of daylight saving time two weeks apart, despite being a single metropolitan area only separated by the Mississippi River. Passengers on a 35-mile bus ride from Steubenville, Ohio to Moundsville, West Virginia, passed through seven time changes during their 40 minutes on the bus. (laughs) It went on like this until 1966 when the U.S. Congress finally passed a law establishing a national standard, and even then some states could opt out, as did Hawaii and most of Arizona. Mm -hmm. But even with the nationwide standard, the time change still causes travel issues to this day. Amtrak, for example, pauses all overnight trains for an hour at the spring time change so as not to cause schedule issues. And in the fall, the overnight expresses try to make up the lost time as best they can. Mm. And it's interesting because actually, you know, back in early, early history, before we even had, you know, cross state clocks, every town actually had their own local noon. Like this was just a thing. Every town Mm -hmm. had its own sundial. But, you know, because you didn't have stuff like telephones or trains or anything like that it just wasn't nearly as big of a deal i guess you would just travel to another town which took forever and you didn't know how long anyway so once you got there you're like it's noon i guess yeah (laughs) sun's up there which at least makes sense you're saying noon is when the sun is overhead but it is weird when it's like oh it's 753 in this city and it's 759 in the next city over yeah Yeah. i mean that's hard And so returning to the example of the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, the result of their two-week separation between daylight savings time was mass confusion. Mm -hmm. According to the Star Tribune, some policemen had watches on both hands to keep track of what time it was, depending (laughs) on where they were in the Twin Cities. That's an awesome solution. I like that. (laughs) The joke was that a policeman would answer your call on standard time, but a fireman would go by daylight time. (laughs) <laughs> At work, some businesses would go with staggered start and end times. Others would make do with some employees arriving early and some late. Eventually, St. Paul's own time change kicked in his schedules, and the two cities were once again marching to the same beat. 
Incidentally, Canada had a similar famous situation with Lloydminster, which, unlike the Twin Cities, is a single municipality, though straddling the border between Saskatchewan and Alberta. Mm. Alberta switches its clocks, but Saskatchewan remains on standard time all year round. So, to get around the inevitable headaches, the Saskatchewan side of the city observes daylight saving time along with Alberta. I mean, I we're still experiencing nonsense like that because Britain also, they do daylight savings time, but they always switch like a week before or a week after us, depending on whether it's the fall or the spring, which I know <laughs> because I have to regularly coordinate with a bunch of people in Britain. And like right around daylight savings, I always have to be like, okay, but have you had it yet? Are we, are we five hours off or are we six hours <laughs> off now? And, like, it's, yeah. Oh. So frustrating. That's why I love the term time chaos so much because mm -hmm. it encapsulates both the problem and the solution. The problem is that it's chaos, but the solution is just give in, let it go, <laughs> abolish watches. <laughs> Just have no schedules <laughs> at all. <laughs> I mean, the other way we could go is the exact opposite direction where everybody just owns 24 watches. That seems <laughs> simple enough. That, there we go. Like, my kid's school has clocks up on the wall that are like, this is what time it is in Berlin and Madrid and whatever. And it's supposed to be just cute decor, except the clocks are all wrong. And it infuriates <laughs> me. <laughs> time chaos, yeah, man. They're I mean, just leaning into it. Yeah, we just want to emphasize personal responsibility, you know? <laughs> this will also be a great opportunity to introduce the the timekeeping device I've always wanted, the ankle watch. All right. Huh? I mean, you might get mistaken for a, uh, oh God, what do you call that? <laughs> a prison yeah, monitor. Man. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it tracks time after all, so. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, next link. Next link. This next article is from Nautilus or Nautil.us, and it's called Everyday Noises Are Making Our Brains Noisier. Mm. The argument here is that while we tend to look at noise pollution purely in terms of hearing damage, more and more research is starting to show that even very low-level noises have a direct impact on our brains, especially in children. And it's Ooh. honestly pretty sobering when you start to look at the numbers. For example, one study in a New York elementary school showed that students on one side of the building, which faced a set of elevated train tracks, had lower reading scores than students on the other side of the building who were shielded from the constant low rumble. Students on the noisy side were consistently three to 11 months behind their peers. Ooh. And when the New York Transit Authority installed rubber padding on the railroad tracks near the school and the Board of Education installed some noise abatement material inside the walls on that side of the building, the difference in reading scores completely vanished, even though <sighs> the overall noise wow. reduction was only about seven decibels. Oof. Other studies have shown a strong correlation between a noisy environment and general health problems, regardless of what the noise is or where it comes from, because you might expect to see a lot of confounding factors in, say, a person who lives near an airport. That's probably mm -hmm. going to be a lower socioeconomic neighborhood. You know, maybe the air pollution factors in. But in fact, they say this correlation applies just as strongly to, for example, a well-paid computer technician who happens to spend a lot of time in a data center with all those computer fans blowing all the time. And the results of this include a wide range of symptoms, including higher levels of cortisol, memory mm -hmm. problems, and even stiffer blood vessels and higher levels of hypertension and heart attack. Ooh. So it's stressful. It's saying that noisy environments are, they create stress. It is, but it gets even worse than that. So like oh, no. in one experiment, subjects were asked to track a moving ball while other balls were roving around on the screen. And there wasn't any noise during the experiment. But participants who had experienced long-term noise exposure as part of their occupation 
had a more difficult time with the task, especially when the task itself was accompanied by random noises. Ooh. And they've now demonstrated that low-level background noise directly impacts brain development, or at least in rats. So like humans, the auditory cortex of a rat's brain is organized tonotopically, meaning it's laid out like a keyboard with low pitches on one end and high pitches on the other. But we know this is something that develops over time, and the brains of newborn rats are still learning where to map these sounds that they've never heard before. So when baby rats were raised in an environment with continuous 70 decibel noise, which is not that loud, it's basically equivalent to the background noise of an office or being inside a car traveling at 60 miles per hour, their auditory cortexes never developed this tonotopic organization, (gasps) meaning the rats couldn't necessarily differentiate or interpret the sounds they were hearing. Oh, no. Yeah. So obviously this has implications for the overall environment that human babies are raised in. But it may be especially critical, the author points out, for babies who are born prematurely or with other health problems who end up spending the first several weeks or even months of their life in the hospital. Because a neonatal intensive care unit is not a quiet place. Yeah, there's machinery. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, they've also found that it isn't the volume of the noise that matters so much as the relative importance of that sound. So in one study, for example, they didn't make the NICU any quieter but they piped in a louder recording of the mother's heartbeat and voice into each baby's incubator. And babies with exposure to these good sounds along with the bad had a more fully developed auditory cortex than the infants who heard only the bad sounds. They also said live music performed in the NICU also stabilized babies' heartbeats, reduced stress, and fostered sleep. Which is just funny to me to imagine like a little string quartet inside the NICU performing for a bunch Why of Why funny? I mean, if it helps, if it helps oh, sure. stressed and anxious little cells calm down and form properly, I mean, yay yeah, music. absolutely. More of it. And I guess the idea is that you just want to make sure that whatever sounds you want to train them as important are, I guess, louder than the background noise. <laughs> right. There is a limit. You don't want it to be blasting their eardrums out. But... <laughs> But yeah, from a neurological standpoint, it seems to be more about the brain saying, well, I'm hearing this, so it must be important. And if Mm -hmm. what they're hearing is just garbage, their brain's not really going to know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. What this means, unfortunately, is that the popular white noise machines that people often use to drown out things like traffic aren't necessarily as good for us as we think they are. Even noise-canceling headphones aren't perfect because while they do counteract active sounds coming in, the way they do it actually results in increased air pressure against your eardrums, and some people can find that as exhausting as listening to actual sounds. That is super true. I just got some new AirPod Pros. It's that weird, like, sucking of Mm -hmm. sound absence feeling that makes my head feel small whenever noise canceling is turned on. Yeah, and that's what they say is that, like, conceptually this is a good idea, but in practice it just doesn't help as much as people think it ought to. They say Mm -hmm. the best solution, if you can tolerate them, is just plain old earplugs. Plus, of course, you know, making less noise where we can. As the Mm -hmm. author says, quote, Does our clothes dryer really have to speak to us? Is it essential for the car to chirp or honk every time we lock or unlock it? Does everyone need to hear Eric's video game? And I'm sure that's generic, (laughs) but I also like to think that this guy has a son named Eric and this whole article is just a passive-aggressive He has had enough. He he is on his last nerve. Pay attention. Turn it down. Exactly. Exactly. Or get earplugs. But it would be easier if Eric would turn his video game down. Eric, (laughs) (laughs) God. Next link. 
Next link. And now for something completely different, Discover Magazine has a great article on how citizen scientists uncovered the strange behavior of vampire butterflies. Yes. Yeah. So citizen scientists, anyone can become one, even you. And if this article speaks to you, there's even information at the bottom of how to directly contribute to this particular study. But Hmm. to begin with, we'll focus on a couple of friends who met up in the tropical forest of Indonesia, and they were just going to take some pictures of nature. They knew there were a lot of colorful butterflies that would congregate in the area. And that is what they found. They went to the island of Sulawesi, which is in the midst of the Pacific Archipelago. But once they were home and looked over their photographs, they saw some weird things. Hiding in the midst of the Lepidopteran bustle was a strange, unsettling, and wholly unexpected discovery. (laughs) What they found in the photos was that butterflies and caterpillars were sharing branches of the same plants and jostling for space in the foliage. No surprise there. But the butterflies weren't just hanging out with their younger compatriots. They were feeding on them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The images showed adult milkweed butterflies tearing into the skin of nearby caterpillars, then drinking from the wounds. (laughs) It's likely the butterflies were really attracted to getting compounds known as pyrolyzidine alkaloids, which are originally made by plants. And these toxic chemicals are a dietary staple for caterpillars and butterflies because it gives them an important chemical defense against predators. That is, in fact, why milkweed butterflies like the monarch are so colorful, but pretty bold in how they fly because they rely on these toxins for protection and they advertise them with these warning colors, which is pretty common in nature. Mm -hmm. They're calling it kleptopharmacophagy. Klepto means to steal from the ancient Greek, while pharmacophagy is a term for when animals eat things for their chemical contents rather than for nutrition. If that isn't the scientific term for vampire, I don't know what it is, y'all. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's vampires who are getting high. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, the friends came home, took a closer look at the photos. They found that it wasn't just an isolated incident. When all was said and done, they found seven species of milkweed butterfly going after caterpillars from a few different species in the milkweed butterfly family. So they took some time to go through old image archives from other naturalists, as well as butterfly images from the citizen science project iNaturalist. They found a recording of an adult butterfly attacking another adult, slashing at and drinking from its wings. So, um, yeah, it, the quote here, it's a highly perplexing interaction and one that doesn't quite fit neatly into traditional modes of biological interactions, too in particular, predation and parasitism. Mm -hmm. So their study was descriptive, meaning they found lots of examples, but they didn't do enough testing, right? They didn't collect any specimens, so they were unable to do so in this outing. And it's a gap that citizen scientists are ideally situated to help address. We all got cell phones now. If you see a living creature attacking something similar to imbibe it, let the world know. Yeah, take that picture. Or... Take a lot of drugs because you know that any vampire who drinks from your blood is going to like immediately pass out. So it's a good yeah, protection yeah. technique, I think. Or, you know, if you don't take drugs, just dress like you do. You know, get the puka shell <laughs> necklace, um, get some tie dye on. These loud, bright colors indicate you have toxins in your body and That's will right. let predators know not to bite you. <laughs> now I get why they dress like that for rage. Oh, yeah. So much sense. Excellent point. <laughs> it, it attracts very particular mates. 
bites and it also keeps predators away. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Forbes.com and is titled, What Do We Know About Doctor Prescribed Museum Visits? Ooh, nothing. Uh, not I'm enough. gonna say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we know a little bit, actually. I mean, we know very little, right. but somebody knows. So let's find <laughs> out what they know. Uh, doctors in Brussels are prescribing museum visits to their patients who are struggling with stress due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Museum therapy isn't new, and doctors in other places, such as Montreal, have also been prescribing visits to the local museum as therapy. In September, Brussels City Councilor Delphine Huba announced that she planned to start a three-month trial to allow doctors at a mental health unit of the Brugman Hospital to prescribe museum visits to their patients who were suffering from stress. With a prescription, patients can attend several participating museums around Brussels as part of their recovery from COVID-19-induced mental health problems. The trial will run until the end of this year when it will be reevaluated, but similar programs have been implemented in other places. Huba's idea for the Brussels-based art intervention strategy came from an earlier initiative in Canada. In 2018, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts and Medicines Francophones du Canada started a program that let doctors prescribe their patients with a museum visit in addition to their other treatments. They got a special prescription pad with 50 sheets which they could give to any of their patients to get free access to the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. In June 2019, Fortune reported that patients in the Montreal program had at that point redeemed 185 of the prescriptions that had been handed out by doctors. Hmm. But there doesn't seem to have been a systematic report yet to summarize whether the system was deemed successful. However, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts has taken part in several other health-related projects. One in particular, Thursdays at the Museum, has been formally documented in peer-reviewed scientific papers. In this project, 150 participants over the age of 65 took part in weekly interactive art activities at the museum. At several points during the course of the 12 weeks in the study, they answered a questionnaire about their well-being. Based on the answers, McGill University researchers determined that the art activities at the museum did increase the overall mood and well-being of the people that took part. In the UK, a similar study called Museums on Prescription ran from 2015 to 2017. For this project, the activities were offered as a 10-week series of events at seven different museums. Each museum offered something else, so it could be interactive art-making workshops or behind-the-scenes meetings with curators. This study, too, showed positive effect on well-being among people who participated in the museum activities. But both these studies were carefully coordinated so that people took part in organized and monitored events where they were directly engaged with other participants and the museum staff. It's not the same thing as simply sending someone to a museum for free. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was the sense of being part of a group or being guided along activities that made the participants in the museum studies feel better, not necessarily the act of being in a museum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Social component. Yeah, exactly. And so it's hard to say whether simply prescribing a museum visit will have the same effect. Still, sending patients to a museum when they seem to need a distraction isn't likely to harm them, even if it's not clear whether it will work for everyone. Sure. <laughs> As the vice president of Medicines Francophones du Canada, Helen Boyer said, it's so rare in medicine that you prescribe something and you do not need to worry about all those side effects. <laughs> so if you get offered a free visit to the museum by your doctor, maybe take it. I think there's definitely a component of having an activity scheduled for you that mm -hmm. creates this obligation in your mind. Because it's like, you know, if you've ever had to go to physical therapy, the exercises are easy. You learn them pretty quickly. And from that point on, it's just about having this spot in your schedule where someone else is going to make you mm -hmm. do it. 
And <laughs> if you if you were, you know, had the self-discipline, you could just as easily go one time, learn the exercises you need and then do them all at home and be fine. But people don't. They have to have that weekly appointment. And maybe the obligation of saying, no, your doctor says you have to go to a museum this week gets people there more than they would have of just, you know, saving yeah. the cost. Yeah, you're right. The emotional labor of having something planned and arranged for you mm -hmm. gives you a luxurious freedom to really make space for being curious and engaging with the material instead of having to burn all of your spoons on the logistics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If someone wants to come to my house and pick me up and take <laughs> me to a museum and <laughs> run an arts and crafts activity and then take me home, I'll be on board with yeah. that a lot sooner than me going Man. like, okay, I'm going to get off my butt. I'm going to find where the museum is. I'm going to drive over there. Like the parking alone yeah. is enough to make me go, nope, not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what it sounds like there is a market need for is kindergarten for adults absolutely yeah, a school bus how fun would that be like <laughs> yeah a school bus just picks you up takes you to a museum you walk around and then you get taken to another room with pillows and crayons mm -hmm. and you get to take a nap oh yeah. scheduled mm. nap times come on <laughs> <laughs> next link next, next link, link. All right. Well, the New York Times has a rather daunting article called Antarctica was once a land of fire and not ice. Oh, it starts like this. Quote, imagine the forests of Chilean Patagonia, wet and cold, dense with monkey puzzle trees and other hardy conifers. Now imagine it with dinosaurs walking around and on fire. Oh. And this is <laughs> this is apparently what Antarctica looked like around 75 million years ago during the Cretaceous period, an era which scientists also apparently refer to as super fire world. <laughs> so metal. Yeah, because it turns out that wildfires or more accurately paleo fires were incredibly common during this period. It was a time of rapid climate change marked by mass extinctions, fluctuating amounts of oxygen in the atmosphere, and huge changes in the amount of vegetation covering the planet. And what we don't know, and what scientists are trying now to figure out, was did the fires cause the climate change or the other way around? So they've mm. been studying this super fire world period in Earth's history for several decades now. But up until now, the general assumption was that the fires were mostly happening in the northern hemisphere. That's all changed thanks to a new study from the University of Tocari Valley in Brazil, which has identified charcoal deposits in Antarctica that prove our southernmost continent was just as much on fire as everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> and on their face, these charcoal deposits don't look particularly special. According to Dr. Andre Jasper, if you do a barbecue, you will have the same type of material. But with new imaging software and scanning electron microscopy, they're able to look at the patterned layout of the burned cells and determine not only that it was originally vegetation, but even what species it was. Ooh. So the most recent examples gathered from sediment on James Ross Island off the coast of Antarctica, for example, came from an Araucaraceae, or ancient species of conifer. And obviously, if you've got conifer trees on Antarctica, you know the climate must have looked a whole lot different than it does today. On the other hand, when you're talking about global averages, the Cretaceous period was only about four degrees warmer than we are today, which really puts Ooh. into perspective that two degree warming cap that climate scientists keep warning us about. If four <sighs> degrees means Antarctica is a lovely forest covered in wildfires like that's that's yeah. terrifying. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so when it comes to the question of did the fires cause the warming or the other way around, 
Most scientists at this point think it was actually both. Warmer temperatures make wildfires more common, then the fires dump a bunch of CO2 into the atmosphere, which causes even warmer temperatures, until by the end you're left with a super fire world. Ironically, (laughs) the article notes, these charcoal samples were previously being held at the National Museum of Brazil and happened to be moved to a different laboratory just a few months before a fire broke out in the museum and destroyed thousands of priceless relics. Which is the kind of narrative symbolism where if you put it into a work of fiction, people would be like, I don't know, it's getting a little heavy handed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Antarctica used to be on fire and we're all going to die. That's pretty much the summation of this. You know, Super Fire World as some kind of like pyro theme park really needs to be a thing. That's true. We should lean into this. Just, you know, embrace what's coming. Figure out. I'm telling (laughs) you. If we can't make money off of the nihilistic end of the world, what good are we? That's right. Honestly, it sounds like a Super Mario level. Like <laughs> the little fire yeah, things super traveling fire in a circle. World. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, guys. This is from Crime Read, so it's appropriately, I don't know, spicy. <laughs> but this is a profile on Rome's imperial poisoner, and possibly the world's first serial killer. Ooh. So it goes into the life and history of Locusta of Gaul. Locusta grew up learning about herbs and botany, including the benefits and the dangers of certain plants. Some cultures may have called her a witch, but regardless, upon moving to Rome, she realized that the quickest way to turn a profit from that knowledge was to provide people with poisons. And in a city where greed and ambition were rampant and everyone had plenty of enemies, she found no shortage of customers. Even though she made a killing, pardon the pun, (laughs) she was not immune from the law. She was imprisoned and she might have died an early death had word of her skills not reached Empress Agrippa the Younger. So in 54 CE, Agrippa wished to murder her husband, Claudius, the better to ensure her son Nero inherited the throne. So she hires Locusta. And here's where it gets into some pretty spicy detail. So first, Locusta supplied a poison intended to agitate the bowels of Claudius's guard and food tester. So with him out of the way, poison was spread onto a dish of mushrooms, Claudius's favorite food. He ate them without hesitation. But being a cautious man, Claudius always had a feather on hand. In the event he suspected a poison, he could use the feather to tickle the back of his throat and make himself vomit. (laughs) Wow, okay. (laughs) Right? I mean, you know, assassinations being that commonplace, you find a few tricks, but sadly this one didn't work. Because Locusta saw to it the feather had also been soaked in poison. <gasps> oh, <laughs> clever girl. Wow. Right? And, you know, Agrippina wasn't the only member of the family to use Locusta's skills. Apparently, Nero himself didn't feel his mother's machinations had been sufficient to ensure he kept the throne permanently. <laughs> so he recruited her to provide poison to kill his brother, Britannicus, who was also a competitor for the throne. Wow. This murder was a little bit trickier. Poison could not simply be poured into food or drink because everything was sampled by a food tester. And if the poison were quick acting, the food tester would die almost instantly, which would leave Britannicus unharmed. But if the poison was slow acting, the fact that both the food tester and his employer became sick could serve as proof they had been poisoned, which might cast suspicion upon Mm -hmm. the killer. So at a party, Britannicus was presented with a goblet of wine that was extremely hot. 
So the food taster tried it and emerged unharmed because the poison wasn't in the wine. It was in the carafe of cold water that Britannicus used to lower the temperature of his wine. <laughs> and as he died in front of the party gasping for breath, Nero told everyone his brother often suffered from such epileptic fits. Ugh. So evil to be like, don't worry about him. He has these fits from time to time. Yeah, and yeah. It's true. Nero, <laughs> Nero is remembered as a truly evil and insane emperor. But Locusta did well by him. He appointed her imperial poisoner. <laughs> what a title. <laughs> nice. He even granted her large estates. And perhaps more importantly, he also issued a pardon for the many poisonings she had committed. So she spent what the author assumes were a happy few years murdering people at the discretion <laughs> of the imperial family and even opened a school to teach others how to make wow. poison. Wow. Not bad from a peasant girl from Gaul, right? Yeah. Yeah, you got to have friends in high places, man. That's... <laughs> exactly. But to be fair, her contentment was brief. The citizens, as we all know, revolted against Nero and the Senate condemned him. That was understandable as he was always killing people, including <laughs> his mother, Agrippina, who had once been so desperate to see him on the throne. Uh... Fun little tidbit, when Nero's assassins came for her, she ruefully told them they should stab her in the womb. <laughs> the drama. Uh, Nero committed suicide in 68 CE. Sadly for him, he did so without the aid of Locusta's poisons. Nero's successor, Emperor Galba, arrested Nero's cronies and sentenced them to death. I mean, you know, that's what happens when you consort with people who are rich and powerful is you end up with huge amounts of power. You've got estates, you're, you know, running whole poisoning <laughs> schools. But then as soon as he's out of power, you're dead. They absolutely chop your head off because you belong to the previous guy. Like, mm -hmm. it makes you question why anyone would want it. <laughs> Instead of saying poison, I'm sorry, power corrupts, we should say po power poisons. Mm -hmm. oh, mm -hmm. yeah. was, maybe we shouldn't say it. I had a hard time spitting that one out, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from daily.jstore.org and it's titled A Short History of the Public Restroom. Since, Ooh. you know, we've been talking about poisoning, so why not the right. place you go to get rid of poison? I don't know. <laughs> Just trying to segue. So any visitor to a major American city knows that access to a clean public restroom is a strategic concern. Mm -hmm. Most options are private or semi-private where admission or purchase may be necessary or at least strongly encouraged. So whatever happened to the municipal comfort station? Historian Peter C. Baldwin traces the origin of public toilets in cities to the saloon. Before the turn of the 20th century, the toilets that saloons hosted were often the only option in urban areas, and saloon keepers regarded this service as effective as free lunches in attracting customers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hotels, department stores, and railroad stations also offered facilities, but these tended to screen out whole sectors of the population. For instance, an 1893 manual for designing railroad stations specified the creation of distinct spaces so that genteel folk would be spared contact with lower classes. Oh. Yeah. Mm. The scattered location of public urinals around American cities in the 19th century meant that public urination was frequent. And urinals also weren't very user-friendly for women either. <laughs> Progressive reformers mm -hmm. pushed for municipal toilets, generally referred to as comfort stations or restrooms. So that's actually where the term arrest comes from, I suppose. Hmm. Ah. Yeah. Elite women's groups got behind the idea as well. And by 1919, more than 100 cities had opened above ground or underground comfort stations. 
The beginning of Prohibition that same year closed thousands of saloons, increasing the demand for public restrooms. But it wasn't long before concerns about inadequate privacy, safety, and cleanliness discouraged many people, particularly women, from using public comfort stations, Baldwin writes. Only about one-fifth of visitors to comfort stations were women, not generally including members of the very women's groups who advocated them. Hmm. The expense, meanwhile, (laughs) of attendance and maintenance of such facilities helped discourage construction of more. The appeal of municipal ownership of public toilets didn't survive the Depression. The last of these progressive-era comfort stations succumbed to the municipal strangulation of the 1960s and 1970s, the same period saw the closure of the majority of bathrooms associated with public transit, and as Baldwin notes, a consumer model of privacy which preserved class privilege by excluding the less affluent one out. What he calls a bodily privacy is a purchasable commodity, not a right conferred by government on all citizens. And uh, then we end, you know, now try not to catch the bartender's eye as you sidle toward the back. Right. <laughs> That's the deal is you'll, you have to purchase something. And I'll, I'll straight up tell you, like, I went into a store once with a little child who needed to go and they were like, you know, the restroom is only for customers. This was like a furniture store. I wasn't going to buy anything. And I was like, OK, I need you to look and see that I have a four year old and she is going to pee on your floor. So you can have that or you can let her use the bathroom. And those are your choices. Like this isn't <laughs> this is a standoff it. that That's you it. have the power to end. So they did let us use the bathroom. Yeah. It's pretty wise of them, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good business decision Absolutely. on multiple levels. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Can Psychopaths Be Helped After All? The British Island Where Wallabies Rule? And A Drone Tried to Disrupt the Power Grid? It Won't Be the Last. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and enjoy the conspicuous lack of advertising we promote, you can support us in that endeavor at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 